0: Listening to America'sWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good evening, and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, covering everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, how to make sense about articles relating to the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, but without the hype and distortion of other media sources. And... As always, the mission is to better inform the general public about mental health issues while trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome to this podcast pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday, September the 7th, 2016. Hope you had a good Labor Day holiday weekend. When I saw this first article we're going to talk about tonight, I thought to myself, wow, here, this is exactly the kind of thing, as far as a scientific study, that the mainstream media will seize upon and will understandably get a lot of people very anxious and concerned. It is the finding that prenatal exposure to BPA, uh, that's Bisphenol A, is linked to anxiety and depression in boys. Um, boys exposed prenatally to a common chemical used in plastics, that's what BPA is, may be more likely to develop symptoms of anxiety and depression at age 10 to 12. The new study is from researchers at the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health and it examined early life exposure to the chemical BPA. Results are published in the journal Environmental Research. BPA is, unfortunately, a common component of many plastics. It is found in food containers, plastic water bottles, dental sealants, and thermal receipt paper like you get when you use a credit or debit card, though so it's pretty much all over the place in terms of our environment. In the body, BPA acts as a synthetic estrogen, one of the class of chemicals known as endocrine disruptors, which uh, pertains to our glandular functions. The Columbia researchers previously reported that prenatal exposure to BPA was associated with emotionally reactive and aggressive behavior, and more symptoms of anxiety and depression in boys at age seven through nine. Researchers followed 241 non-smoking pregnant women and their children from pregnancy through childhood. To measure the amount of BPA that had been absorbed in the body Researchers collected a urine sample from the mothers during the third trimester of their pregnancy and from the children at age 3 and age 5. In ages 10 through 12, children completed an interview with a trained researcher about their symptoms of depression and completed a self-assessment that measures anxiety. Now, the researchers say they controlled for factors that have been previously associated with BPA exposure levels, including socioeconomic factors. After separating the data by gender, they found that boys with the highest levels of prenatal exposure to BPA had more symptoms of depression and anxiety than boys with lower levels of prenatal exposure to BPA no such associations were found in girls. The authors say that these findings are consistent with their prior reports on BPA and children's development assessed at earlier ages and suggest greater susceptibility of the male brain during prenatal development. Anxiety and depression are particularly worrisome because they can interfere with a child's ability to concentrate, perform in school, socialize, and make friends. Well, so as a result of something like that, of course, women who are pregnant or planning to get pregnant are understandably going to be upset about that, especially if they're if they already know they're having a boy, what to do? Well, even though this group has had previous research documenting the harm coming from prenatal exposure to BPA, and uh, they claim this study just continues and expands on those earlier findings, it's still just an association. Uh, I do think while it's a good conclusion to say that BPA exposure is not safe. Uh, this one study is by no means definitive. So out of prudence, out of an abundance of caution, if possible, pregnant women should avoid exposure to BPA just to play it safe. Uh, even though, even with this study, you can't say for sure that there is this connection between the BPA exposure and the anxiety and depression. Fortunately, as ubiquitous as it is in our environment, it's not difficult to avoid, if not severely limit, one's exposure to BPA. Uh, starting with not asking for receipts when you use your credit or debit card in stores. Getting food containers and uh Bottle, including containers of water and reusable water bottles that do not contain BPA. Uh, it takes a little more work or effort, but it can be done until we have more definitive answers on this issue. Fortunately, uh, there's enough growing evidence about the environmental harm to be done by BPA that more and more manufacturers are creating products that do not contain it. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, there's going to be less and less exposure to it as uh, these newer products come online. Next up on psychiatry today, well, as uh, we marked the beginning of September, the first podcast in September, that's the end of summer, I hope you had a chance to take a vacation during the summer, and if you didn't, and you have vacation time coming to you between now and uh, the end of the year, that uh, you take advantage of it, because we're about to talk about some health benefits of it and some research about those health benefits, and let's uh, take it even a step much further back, let's say the beginning of the year, you made a New Year's resolution that you were going to do things to reduce your level of stress and maybe one of those things was meditation. Alright, admittedly that's a little bit of a reach. Probably the more common resolutions are quitting smoking, losing weight, eating better, exercising more, etc. But in case you had resolved to meditate and even at this late point of the year, you haven't gotten around to it yet. This same article documents the benefits of that as well for your health. Scientists from University of California, San Francisco, and Harvard Medical School used a rigorous study design to assess the biological impact of meditation compared to vacation. They examined the effect of meditation on gene expression patterns in both novice and regular meditators. The researchers found that a resort vacation provides a strong and immediate impact on molecular networks associated with stress and immune pathways in addition to short-term improvements in well-being as measured by feelings of vitality and distress. A meditation retreat, for those who already used meditation regularly, was associated with molecular networks characterized by antiviral activity. The molecular signature of long-term meditators was distinct from the non-meditating vacationers. The study was published in the journal Translational Psychiatry. So how about that? Both vacation, even just, you know, one resort vacation and also regular meditation provide distinct benefits for our immune function. The study involved 94 healthy women aged 30 to 60. 64 women were recruited who were not regular meditators. Participants stayed at the same resort in California for 6 days and randomized so that half were simply on vacation while the other half joined a meditation training program run by the Chopra Center for Well-being. The meditation program included training in mantra meditation, yoga, and self-reflection exercises, and it was designed by Deepak Chopra but uh, that doctor was not a participant in the data collection or analysis. So he didn't benefit from the study. They just used his design in terms of the meditation program. Now, for greater insight into the long-term effects of what scientists dubbed the meditation effect compared to the vacation effect, The team also studied a group of 30 experienced meditators who were already enrolled in the retreat that week. Researchers collected blood samples and surveys from all participants immediately before and after their stay, as well as surveys one month and ten months later. In the spirit of other research efforts, This work underscores the importance of studies focused on healthy people. By combining looking at gene networks with advanced data analysis and statistics, they have meaningful information about stress and aging that is relevant to the broader population. Well, before we delve more into the findings of the study, let's take a commercial break here. We come back from that. We'll finish up looking at the immune benefits of vacation and meditation, and other mental health-related news.
0: You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
2: Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org.
3: Thank you.
0: You're listening to America'sWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Doctor Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how researchers found the immune system benefits when people take a vacation and when they are regular practitioners of meditation. The research team examined the changes in 20,000 genes to determine which types of genes were changing before and after the resort experience. Scientists performed an integrative transcriptomic analysis, which compares gene expression networks across all three groups of participants, finding unique molecular profiles and pathway enrichment patterns. Study results show that all groups, the novice meditators, the experienced meditators, and the vacationers, had significant changes in molecular network patterns after the week at the resort, with a clear signature distinguishing baseline from post-vacation biology. The most notable changes in gene activity were related to stress response and immune function. Researchers assessed self-reported measures of well-being. While all groups showed improvements up to one month later, the novice meditators had fewer symptoms of depression and less stress much longer than the non-meditating vacationers. The psychological effects appear to be enduring, and it is unknown how much of this longer-lasting benefit may be due to continued practice or lasting changes in how people view events in their lives. It's intuitive that taking a vacation reduces biological processes related to stress, but it is still impressive to see the large changes in gene expression from being away from the busy pace of life in a relaxing environment in such a short period of time The findings will have to be replicated to see if the changes are reliably invoked under the same circumstances in future studies and compared to an at-home control group. Based on the results, the benefit from meditation isn't strictly psychological. There is a clear and quantifiable change in how our bodies function. Meditation is one of the ways to engage in restorative activities that may provide relief for our immune systems easing the day-to-day stress of a body constantly trying to protect itself their prediction is that this would then lead to healthier aging so there you have it it makes common sense that taking a resort vacation will lower your stress level and now you have biological even molecular genetic evidence to document the benefits, right down to differential gene expression just from taking a resort vacation and improving immune function. But I think the surprise here is that those who practice meditation on a regular basis show even greater and more sustained benefits than someone who Don't meditate, but just take a resort vacation. That, I think, is the most impressive take-home point of the study and should give us all more incentive to become regular practitioners of meditation. Next up on psychiatry today, parents' psychiatric illness has been linked to kids' risk of suicide attempt and of committing violent offenses. Now, before I get into the meat of the article, when I read that title, I immediately thought of all of the problems we see in the world today when young people commit acts of violence. Um, Inevitably, parents of these people are looked to for some type of response. Um, In some cases, they're... uh, they had no indication of this type of behavior, and they're just as horribly shocked and saddened as any of us. Uh, in other cases, they knew that these kids had problems and perhaps tried in vain to get them help running into difficulties in the mental health care system or in the medical care system in general or the legal system. So I thought to myself, in this time when we're seeing violent acts attempted and young people committing suicide, if this research can help us learn a little more about what's going on and maybe try to prevent it, that's very important. It brought to home a very recent incident right here in Roswell, Georgia, which is the city where my office takes place. Recently, a young man with a very, very troubled history committed two heinous murders, uh, killed two young high school seniors, a girl and a boy, in different high schools in the area in cold blood. And we find that he had a very, very troubled past and a mother <clears throat> who likely dealt with mental illness and had to uh, have this young man brought up by her parents. So with all that background in mind, let's take a look at this study. The risk for suicide attempts and violent offending by children appears to be associated with their parents' psychiatric disorders, according to an article published online by Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry. Suicide and violent behaviors can cluster within families, possibly because of genetics, epigenetics, and social and environmental influences. Genetic, uh, epigenetics rather is the impact on gene expression from parents' uh, previous exposure to stra- uh, trauma. <clears throat> We're going to be talking later in the podcast about a direct effect of uh, parental trauma on children's stress. Researchers examined associations between a full spectrum of parental psychiatric diseases, including mental disorders, dementia and Alzheimer's disease, substance use disorders, schizophrenia, mood disorders, anxiety, personality disorders, and suicide attempts with attempted suicide and violent offending by children. The study group included more than 1.7 million people born in Denmark from 1967 through 1997 and followed up from their 15th birthday about 2.6% of the study population first attempted suicide and 3.2% were convicted of a first violent offense during the study period. The authors report, risks for suicide attempts and violent offending by children were elevated across virtually the entire spectrum of parental psychiatric disease. The greatest increases in risk for both suicide attempt and violent offending by children were associated with parental diagnoses of antisocial personality disorder, cannabis misuse, and prior suicide attempt. Parental mood disorders, particularly bipolar disorder, were associated with some of the lowest increases in risk, especially in violent offending by children. A history of mental illness or suicide attempt in both parents was associated with twice the risk compared with having only one parent affected. Associations between parental psychiatric disease and violent offending by children were stronger for female than male children. Suicide attempts by children were comparable regardless of sex. The study notes its most important limitation is that although researchers accounted for parental socioeconomic status, they could not adjust for other mitigating factors such as parental criminal histories or experiences of abuse by those in the study group. The similarities in relative risk patterns observed for both adverse outcomes indicate that self-directed and interpersonal violence may have a shared etiology. The study notes children of parents with a history of psychiatric disease also are at increased risk of being exposed to maladaptive parenting practice, family violence, abuse, and neglect, and financial hardship. The impact of those harmful environmental factors can be cumulative. Psychiatrists and other professionals treating adults with mental disorders and suicidal behavior should consider also evaluating the mental health and psychosocial needs of their patients' children because early interventions could benefit not only the parents, but also their offspring. That clearly is the take-home message of this research, that more attention needs to be paid to the children of those who have mental health problems and especially those who have attempted suicide. And perhaps if this were done, then some young people could be prevented from carrying out acts of violence or of making attempts on their own lives as well. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today, regular and long-time listeners to this podcast will know that uh, I strongly advocate the fight against bullying or peer abuse, whatever you decide to call it in children and in adolescents, and that I often present to you findings of research into the ravages of bullying and I advocate that uh, parents and teachers rather than just simply shrug their shoulders and say well this is part of growing up this is what kids do strongly advocate for setting limits against it and encouraging children to be active bystanders and uh, stand up against the bully when you see a peer being abused. Well, next up on the podcast, we have an article about how the negative effects of bullying may persist on into the college years, but we'll take a, uh, another commercial break before we present that research. And then we'll come back with that as well as other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.atlantahealingcenter.com.
2: Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org.
1: Thank you.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And next up on tonight's podcast, wounds from childhood bullying may persist into the college years Childhood bullying inflicts the same long-term psychological trauma on girls as severe physical or sexual abuse, suggests a new survey of college students. The study, which involved 480 college freshmen through seniors, indicated that the detrimental effects of bullying may linger for years negatively affecting victims' mental health well into young adulthood. While most of the scholarship on bullying has focused on kindergarten through 12th grade students, the struggles revealed by college students who participated in the research suggest a need to develop assessments and interventions for this population. Participants in the study were surveyed about their exposure to a variety of traumatic experiences, including bullying, cyberbullying, and crimes such as robbery, sexual assault, and domestic and community violence from birth through age 17. Students also reported on their psychological functioning and symptoms of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The students who experienced bullying as children reported significantly greater levels of mental health problems than their peers. The study was published online by the journal Social Psychology of Education. Experiencing bullying was the strongest predictor of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms among the college students who participated in the survey surpassing other types of trauma, such as exposure to community violence or being abused or neglected by adults. Females, in particular, struggled with the emotional damage inflicted by bullying, reporting significantly greater levels of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder than their male peers. Bullying victimization significantly predicted students' current levels of depression and anxiety, over and above other childhood victimization experiences. The prevalence of psychological distress in children who have been bullied is well documented, and this research suggests that college students' psychological distress may be connected in part to their perceptions of past childhood bullying victimization experiences. Students who experienced one interpersonal trauma were at the greatest risk of being victimized in other ways and of developing post-traumatic stress disorder. The researchers suggested that practitioners in college mental health centers need to be aware that students who request psychological help are likely to have experienced multiple forms of trauma that need to be assessed. Practitioners should routinely collect information about the various types of trauma students may have experienced to identify those people at greatest risk of experiencing PTSD. A critical first step in restoring troubled college students' social and behavioral functioning would be to provide clinicians at campus counseling centers with continued training on the current research on childhood bullying and its long-term effects. The researchers also recommended that universities broaden the curricula of their sexual assault programs to encompass various other traumatic experiences such as child abuse and domestic violence. Connecting students with interventions that help them develop protective social support networks may be the best way to help them cope with the emotional aftermath of bullying and other traumatic experiences. Practitioners in collaboration with school officials need to make all efforts to develop and implement programs that increase traumatized students' sense of empowerment and control as they navigate through college. This would be possible in a campus climate that fosters supportive ties among students and between students and the campus community. (laughs) Well, the fact that this study came out on September the 1st, uh, just as college students are beginning classes uh, the week before usually, uh, is very timely and hopefully this information will filter down to college administrators and those who run mental health clinics on college campuses. Next up on psychiatry today, I have a military and veterans mental health update for you, and it has to do with various health consequences of post-traumatic stress disorder, and yet another reason why we need to pay better attention to the health of people who suffer from it. Metabolic syndrome, which is a cluster of cardiometabolic conditions, may be a biological mechanism. Linking post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD to structural brain abnormalities according to a new study in the journal Biological Psychiatry. The findings highlight the need to develop effective interventions for PTSD to treat not only the symptoms associated with the disorder, but also potential ensuing metabolic and neurodegenerative consequences. Which may be suggestive of premature aging. The results of this study have important implications for our newest cohort of veterans returning from the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. The study comes from the National Center for PTSD at the VA Hospital, or rather the VA Boston Healthcare System in Massachusetts. PTSD is a risk factor for metabolic disease, and as such, young veterans with PTSD should be screened for these metabolic problems. Stress has been thought to be a contributing factor to the development of metabolic syndrome, which occurs about twice as often in patients with PTSD than in the general population. Additionally, metabolic syndrome increases risk for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and other medical conditions that often accompany PTSD and is associated with neurodegeneration. In the study, which was jointly funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and the United States Department of Veterans Affairs, Researchers examined the associations between PTSD, metabolic syndrome, and the structural integrity of the brain. They assessed 346 United States military veterans deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan who participated in the Translational Research Center for Traumatic Brain Injury and Stress Disorders for PTSD and metabolic syndrome, of which 274 participants also had magnetic resonance imaging measures of cortical thickness, an index of the neural integrity of the brain. In other words, the cortex is the outer layer of the brain, and a measure of how thick it is gives you an indication of the health and structural integrity of the brain. Consistent with previously published rates, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome among veterans with PTSD was nearly twice as high as those without PTSD. Structural brain images revealed an association between greater metabolic syndrome severity and reduced thickness of the cortex of the brain. Researchers found an indirect effect of of PTSD on reduced cortical thickness via metabolic syndrome severity. The finding that PTSD-related metabolic syndrome was associated with reduced thickness in large regions of the cortex of the brain was alarming, given that veterans in the study were, on average, quite young and in their early 30s. The question of how PTSD and metabolic syndrome affect brain structure remains unanswered. An additional research will be needed to rule out the possibility that reductions in cortical thickness are actually a risk factor rather than a consequence of PTSD and metabolic syndrome. Still, this association raises concern About the possibility of subsequent neurocognitive decline in this population. You can see that concern comes directly from reduced thickness of the outer layer of the brain. The effects observed in this study may be part of a larger PTSD related accelerated cellular aging process that is manifested in premature health decline. This important study suggests a link between PTSD, metabolic syndrome, and brain health. And by implication, the study suggests that effective treatment for PTSD is needed to not only reduce emotional distress, but to preserve overall health. Well, this is yet another series um, in a lot of research articles looking at the health of our veterans who come back from serving in conflicts with PTSD. Um, It does not only affect our mental health, it also actually leads to damage to brain tissue and other physical health problems. Um, Again, just uh, more and more evidence that we need to pay closer and better attention to our recent veterans of conflicts. And it also is important to point out that typically whatever research we do on military sufferers of PTSD often extends to sufferers in the civilian population of PTSD as well. We'll take another break here and come back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
2: Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and your source for all mental health-related news. Next on Psychiatry Today, trauma's epigenetic fingerprint observed in children of Holocaust survivors. Now, we briefly mentioned epigenetics before when we talked about the effect of parental mental illness and parental suicide attempts on suicidal and violent behavior in their children. Uh, We're going to go into more detail as we discuss this study of uh, what is epigenetic changes and what their implications are. The children of traumatized people have long been known to be at increased risk for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, as well as other anxiety disorders and mood disorders. However, a new study in the journal Biological Psychiatry, uh, there are so few opportunities to examine biological alterations in the context of a watershed trauma in exposed people and their adult children born after the event, as was done in this study. One of the most intensively studied groups in this regard are the children of survivors of the Nazi concentration camps. There has been growing evidence that concentration camp survivors and their children might show changes in the epigenetic regulation of genes. Epigenetic processes alter the expression of a gene without producing changes in the DNA sequence. In other words, the gene will still produce the same product. DNA methylation is one of these epigenetic modifications, which regulates the functions of the genes through processes that add or remove a methyl group to a specific site in the DNA potentially affecting gene transcription. Animal studies have demonstrated that epigenetic changes from stress exposure can be passed on to the offspring. In this new study, researchers examined these relationships for the first time in humans, looking at methylation of FKBP5, a stress-related gene, It has been associated with PTSD and depression. The researchers examined blood samples of 32 Holocaust survivors and 22 of their adult children and Jewish parent-offspring control pairs for methylation of intron 7, a specific region within the FKBP5 gene. So in other words, epigenetics is looking at the changes in gene expression as evidenced by methylation of the DNA in the genetic sequence and how and if these changes brought on by trauma can be passed on to the trauma victim's offspring by looking at their genes. The observations in this study are very revealing the analysis showed that both Holocaust survivors and their offspring showed epigenetic changes at the same site of this location on the FKBP5 gene, but in the opposite direction. Holocaust survivors, the parents in other words, had 10% higher methylation than control parents, whereas Holocaust offspring has 7.7 lower methylation than control offspring, suggesting that parental trauma is certainly a relevant contributor to the biology of their offspring. The observation that the changes in the parent and child are in opposing directions suggests that children of traumatized parents are not simply born with a PTSD-like biology. They may inherit traits that promote resilience as well as vulnerability to trauma. The analysis was not able to disentangle the influence of parental gender. It was also unable to identify whether the effects in offspring resulted from trauma effects to the parental egg or sperm, or changes occurring to offspring during pregnancy or after birth. Childhood adversity is common in children with traumatized parents. So the researchers examined if the offspring's own childhood trauma played a role in the observed effect. Interestingly, a relationship between this gene methylation and reported childhood adversity was observed in the offspring but at a different site within the same region of the gene. According to the authors, their findings indicate that it may be possible to distinguish changes associated with early adverse experiences in offspring from those associated with trauma in previous generations, suggesting the importance for clinicians to inquire about parental trauma in addition to personal trauma. The study raises important questions about the intergenerational transmission of traits from traumatized parents to their children. The observation that the same genes might be affected in parents and children suggests that something specific perhaps related to stress response is being conveyed from parent to child. This research has so many implications. It provides a biological mechanism to explain what has been observed for decades about looking at mental health issues in Holocaust survivors. But also I think it's very important to point out that while the Holocaust, and looking at the survivors and their children, certainly uh, provides a very powerful and stark example of looking at the effects of trauma on gene expression and then gene transmission in the offspring. We needn't confine ourselves to looking at this issue through the lens of the Holocaust. It's certainly one of the worst uh, episodes of trauma ever visited on the human race, but let's face it, there are many others, uh, that happen in the present day that we can look at. For example, uh, survivors of Hurricane Katrina and their children, uh, um, survivors of earthquakes and their children and, and so on. And the list uh, goes on and on. Um, <clears throat> perhaps even Uh, This could be extended to survivors of mass shootings and their children. In any case, uh, the take-home point is that when you can document that there are changes in gene expression and trauma sufferers are passed on to their children, it's a powerful message. And again, it reinforces the message from the study we talked about previously when there are mental health problems in adult patients, clinicians need to pay attention to those patients' offspring and look at whatever mental health problems they may be having as well. Now, next we're going to look at a study linking self-reported child abuse to death in women years later. A study of large number of middle-aged adults suggests Self-reported childhood abuse by women was associated with an increased long-term risk of death, according to an article published online in the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, yet another piece of evidence of the detrimental long-term effects of trauma. Childhood abuse has been linked to a variety of adult psychiatric problems, but its association with later life risk of death as an adult has been less understood. Researchers examined reports of physical and emotional abuse in childhood with all-cause mortality rates in adulthood in a national sample of almost 6,300 adults who were nearly all white and were an average age of about 47. Participants completed questionnaires in 1995 in 1996, and follow-up mortality data was tracked over 20 years. There were 1,091 confirmed deaths, 17.4%, in the study group through last October. They found no association for men between self-reported childhood abuse and long-term risk of all-cause mortality. But the results were very different for women. Women who self-reported experiencing severe physical abuse moderate physical abuse, or emotional abuse from a parent were at increased risk of death during the 20-year follow-up. And mitigating factors such as childhood socioeconomic status, adult depression, or personality traits did not explain the association between childhood abuse and greater risk of death in women. Authors attempt to explain the association Suggesting abuse can heighten vulnerability to psychiatric conditions. Children who experience abuse may develop negative health behaviors, such as drug use, to cope with stress. Obesity and its consequences could be one pathway between childhood abuse and death. And childhood adversities may affect how biological systems operate throughout life. The study acknowledges it is unclear why women appear to be more vulnerable to the effects of abuse than men. Study limitations, including self-reported childhood abuse, which means other explanations may be possible, and that the reports might not accurately represent what happened in participants' childhoods. The findings suggest that women who report child abuse continue to be vulnerable to to premature mortality and perhaps should receive greater attention in interventions aimed at promoting health. The article underscores the fact that we need to generate new knowledge that will fill critical gaps in what is known about mechanisms involved in deleterious outcomes for children who have been abused. The article is an important step in calling for policymakers and society at large to adopt an obligation to eradicate these lifelong inequities for survivors of maltreatment. That, according to an editorial accompanying the article. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you insofar as finding it interesting and informative, and I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week Until we get together next time, but if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott.
0: Good night. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.